Section 2 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tatiana Chichilla. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers by Albert Hubbard. Robert Louis Stevenson and Fanny Osborne, Part 2. His life supplies the writer his theme. People who have not lived, no matter how grammatically they may write, have no real message. Robert Lewis had now severed the umbilical cord. He was going to live his own life, to earn his own living. He could do but one thing, and that was to write. He may have been a procrastinator and everything else, but as a writer he was a skilled mechanic. And so straight away on that ship he began to work his experiences up into copy. Just what he wrote the world will never know, for although the manuscript was sold to a publisher, yet Barabbas did not give it to the people. There are several ways by which a publisher can thrive. To get paid for not publishing is easy money. It involves no risk. In this instance, an Edinburgh publisher bought the manuscript for £30, intending to print it in book form, showing the experience of a Scotchman in search for a fortune in New York. In order to verify certain dates and data, the publisher submitted the manuscript to Thomas Stevenson. Great was that gentleman's interest in the literary venture of his son. He read with a personal interest, for he was the author of the author's being. But as he read, he felt that he himself was placed in a most unenviable light, for although he was not directly mentioned, yet the suffering of the son on the emigrant ship seemed to point out the father as one who disregarded his parental duties. And above all things, Thomas Stevenson prided himself on being a good provider. Thomas Stevenson straightaway bought the manuscript from the publisher for £100. On hearing of the fate of his book, Robert Lewis intimated to his father that thereafter it would be as well for them to deal direct with each other and thus save the middleman's profits. However, the father and son got together on the manuscript question some years later, and the oversensitive parent was placated by striking out certain passages that might be construed as aspersions, and a few direct complimentary references inserted, and the printer got the book on payment of £200. The transaction turned out so well that Thomas Stevenson said, I told you so, and Robert Lewis saw the patent fact that hindsight, accident, and fear sometimes serve us quite well as insight and perspicacity, not to mention perspicuity. We aim for one target and hit the bullseye on another. We sail for a certain port, where, unknown to us, pirates lie in wait, and God sends his storms and drives us upon Treasure Island. There we load up with ingots, as the high tide floats us, and we sail away for home with our unearned increment to tell the untraveled natives how we most surely are the people, and that wisdom will die with us. Robert Lewis was a sick man. The ship was crowded, and the fare and quarters were far from being what he always had been used to. The people he met in the second cabin were neither literary nor artistic, but some of them had right generous hearts. On being interrogated by one of his messmates as to his business, Robert Lewis replied that he was a stonemason. The man looked at his long, slim, artistic fingers and knew better, but he did not laugh. He respected this young man with the hectic flush, reverenced his secret, whatever it might be, and smuggled delicacies from the cook's galley for the alleged stonemason. Thus did he shovel coals of fire on my head until, to ease my heart, I called him aft one moonlight night, and told him I was no stonemason, and begged him to forgive me for having sought to deceive one of God's own gentlemen. Meantime, every day our immigrant turned out a little good copy, and this made life endurable, for was it not Robert Lewis himself who gave us this immortal line? I know what pleasure is, for I have done good work. He was going to her. Arriving in New York, he straightaway invested two dollars in a telegram to San Francisco, and five cents in postage on a letter to Edinburgh. These two things done, he would take time to rest up for a few days in New York. One of the passengers had given him the address of a plain and respectable tavern, 
where an honest laborer of scanty purse could find food and lodging. This was number 10 West Street. Robert Lewis dared not trust himself to the regular transfer company, so he listened to the siren song of the owner of a one-horse express wagon, who explained that the distance to number 10 West Street was something to be dreaded, and that $5 for the passenger in his two tin boxes was like doing it for nothing. The money was paid, the boxes were loaded into the wagon, and Robert Lewis seated upon one of them, with a horse blanket around him, in the midst of a pouring rain, the driver cracked his whip and started away. He drove three blocks starboard and one to port, and backed up in front of number 10 West Street, which proved to be almost directly across the street from the place where the Devonia was docked. But strangers in a strange country cannot argue, they can only submit. The landlord looked over the new arrival from behind the bar, and then through a little window called for his wife to come in from the kitchen. The appearance of the dripping emigrant who insisted in answer to their questions that he was not sick and that he needed nothing made an appeal to the mother heart in this wife of an Irish saloon keeper. Straight away, she got dry clothes from her husband's wardrobe for the poor man, and insisted that he should at once go to his room and change the wet garments for the dry ones. She then prepared him supper, which he ate in the kitchen, and choked for gratitude when this middle-aged, stout, and illiterate woman poured his tea and called him dear heart. She asked him where he was going and what he was going to do. He dared not repeat the story that he was a stonemason. The woman knew he was some sort of superior being and his answer that he was going out west to make his fortune was met by the Irish-like response, and may the Holy Mother grant that ye find it. It is very curious how gentle and beautiful souls find other gentle and beautiful souls, even in bar rooms and among the lowly. I really do not understand it. In his book, Robert Lewis paid the landlord of Number 10 West Street such a heartfelt compliment that the traditions still invest the place, and the present landlord is not forgetful that his predecessor once entertained an angel unawares. When the literary pilgrim enters the door, scrapes his feet on the sanded floor, and says, Robert Louis Stevenson, the barkeeper and loafers straighten up and endeavor to put on the pose and manner of gentlemen, and all the courtesy, kindness, and consideration they can muster are yours. The man who could redeem a West Street barkeeper and glorify a dock saloon must have indeed been a most remarkable personality. To get properly keel-hauled for his overland emigrant trip across the continent, Robert Louis remained in New York three days. The kind landlady packed a big basket of food, not exactly the kind to tempt the appetite of an invalid, but all flavored with goodwill, and she also at the last moment presented him a pillow and a new Caligo pillowcase that has been accurately described, and the journey began. There was no sleeping car for the author of A Lodging for the Night. He sat bolt upright and held tired babies on his knees, or tumbled into a seat and wooed the drowsy god. The third night out, he tried sleeping flat in the aisle of the car on the floor until the brakeman ordered him up and then two men proposed to fight the officious brakeman if he did not leave the man alone. To save a riot, Robert Lewis agreed to obey the rules. It was a ten-day trip across the continent, filled with discomforts that would have tried the constitution of a strong man. Robert Lewis arrived bilgy, as he expressed it, but alive. Mrs. Osborne was better. The day she received the telegram was the turning point in her case. The doctor perceived that his treatment was along the right line and ordered the medicine continued. She was too ill to see Robert Lewis, it was not necessary anyway. He was near, and this was enough. She began to gain. Just here seems a good place to say that the foolish story to the effect that Mr. Osborne was present at the wedding and gave his wife away has no foundation in fact. Robert Lewis never saw Mr. Osborne, and never once mentioned his name to anyone so far as we know. He was a mine prospector and speculator, fairly successful in his work. That he and his wife are totally different in their tastes and ambitions is well understood. They whom God has put asunder, no man can join together. The husband and wife had separated, and Mrs. Osborne went to France to educate her children. 
educate them as far from their father as possible. Also, she wished to study art in her own account. So, blessed be stupidity and heart hunger and haunting misery that drive one out and away. She returned to California to obtain legal freedom and make secure for business affairs. There are usually three parties to a divorce, and this case was no exception. It is a terrible ordeal for a woman to face a divorce court and ask the state to grant her a legal separation from the father of her children. Divorce is not a sudden, spontaneous affair. It is the culmination of a long train of unutterable woe. Under the storm and stress of her troubles, Mrs. Osborne had been stricken with fever. Sickness is a result, and so is health. When Robert Lewis arrived in San Francisco, Mrs. Osborne grew better. In a few months, she pushed her divorce case to a successful conclusion. Mr. Osborne must have been a man with some gentlemanly instincts, for he made no defense, provided a liberal little fortune for his former family, and kindly disappeared from view. Robert Lewis did desultory work on newspapers in San Francisco and later at Monterey, with health up and down as hope fluctuated. In the interval, a cablegram had come from his father saying, Your allowance is 250 pounds a year. This meant that he had been forgiven, although not very graciously, and was not to starve. Robert Louis Stevenson and Fanny Osborne were married May 10, 1880. The Silverado Squatters shows how to spend a honeymoon in a miner's deserted cabin a thousand miles from nowhere. The Osborne children were almost grown, and were at that censorious age when the average youngster feels himself capable of taking mental and moral charge of his parents. But these children were different. Then, they had a different mother. And as for Robert Lewis, he certainly was a different proposition from that ever evolved from creation's matrix. He belongs to no class, evades the label, and fits into no pigeonhole. The children never called him father. He was always Lewis, simply one of them. He married the family, and they married him. He had captured their hearts in France by his storytelling, his flute playing, and his skillful talent with the jackknife. Now he was with them for all time, and he was theirs. It was the most natural thing in the world. Mrs. Stevenson was the exact opposite of her husband in most things. She was quick, practical, accurate, and had a manual dexterity in a housekeeping way beyond the lot of most women. With all his half-invalid, languid, dilettante ways, Robert Lewis adored the man or woman who could do things. Perhaps this was why his heart went out to those who go down to the sea in ships, the folk whose work is founded not on theories, but on absolute mathematical laws. In their 14 years of married life, Robert Lewis never tired of watching Fanny at her housekeeping. To see her turn the flapjacks by a simple twist of the wrist is a delight not soon to be forgotten, and my joy is to see her hanging clothes on the line in a high wind. The folks at home labored under the hallucination that Robert Lewis had married a native Californian, and to them a native meant half-breed Indian. The fact was that Fanny was born in Indiana, but this explanation only deepened the suspicion, for surely people who lived in Indiana are Indians, anyone would know that. Cousin Robert made apologies and explanations, although none was needed, and placed himself under the ban of suspicion of being in league to protect Robert Lewis, for the fact that the boys had always been quite willing to lie for each other had been very well known. Mrs. Stevenson made good all that Robert Lewis lacked. In physique, she was small, but sturdy and strong. Mentally, she was very practical, very sensible, very patient. Then she had wit, insight, sympathy, and that fluidity of spirit which belongs only to the elect few, who know that nothing really matters much either way. Such a person does not contradict, set folks straight as to dates, and shake the red rag of wordy warfare, even in the interests of truth. Then keeping house on Silverado Hill was only playing at keep house, and the way all hands entered into the game made it the genuine thing. People who keep house in earnest or do anything else in dead earnest are serious but not sincere. Sincere people are those who can laugh, even laugh at themselves, 
and thus they are saved from ossification of the heart and fatty degeneration of the cerebrum. The Puritans forgot how to play, otherwise they would never have hanged the witches or gone after the Quakers with fetters and handcuffs. Uric acid and crystals in the blood are bad things, but they are worse when they get into the soul. That most delightful story of Treasure Island was begun as a tale for Lloyd Osborne around the evening campfire. Then the hearers begged that it be written out, and so it was begun, one chapter a day. As fast as a chapter was written, it was read in the evening to an audience that hung on every word and speculated as to what the characters would do next. All applauded, all criticized, all made suggestions as to what was true, that is to say, as to what the parties actually did and said. Treasure Island is the best story of adventure ever written, and if anybody knows a better recipe for story writing than the plan of writing just for fun for someone else, it has not yet been discovered. The miracle is that Robert Louis the Scotchman should have been so perfectly understood and appreciated by this little family from the other side of the world. The Englishman coming to America speaks a different language from ours. His illusions, symbols, aphorisms belong to another sphere. He does not understand us, nor we him. But Robert Louis Stevenson and Fanny Osborne must have been universals, for they never really had to get acquainted. They loved the same things, spoke a common language, and best of all recognized that what we call life isn't life at the last, and that an anxious stirring, clutching for place, pelf, and power is not nearly so good in results as to play the flute, tell stories, and keep house just for fun. The Stevenson spirit of gentle raillery was well illustrated by Mrs. Strong in an incident that ran somewhat thus. A certain boastful young person was telling of a funeral where, among other gorgeous things, were eight pallberries. Said Mrs. Stevenson in admiration, Just now, I think. Pallberries at a funeral. How delightful. My dear, said Robert Lewis, reprovingly, you know perfectly well that we always have pallberries at our funerals in Samoa. Quite true, my dear, provided it is pallberry season. And suppose it is not pallberry season. Do we have them tinted? Yes, but there is a tendency to pick them green. That is awful. But not so awful as to leave them on the bushes until they get rotten. Fink, in his fine book, Romantic Love and Personal Beauty, says that not once in a hundred thousand times do you find a man and wife who have reached a state of actual understanding. Incompatibility comes from misunderstanding and misconstruing motives, and more often, probably, attributing motives where none exists. And until a man and a woman comprehend the working of each other's mind and respect the mood, there is no mental mating. And without a mental mating, we can talk of rights and ownership, but not of marriage. The delight of creative work lies in self-discovery. You are mining nuggets of power out of your own cosmos, and the find comes as a great and glad surprise. The kindergarten baby who discovers he can cut out a pretty shape from colored paper and straightaway runs to run home to show Mama his find is not far separated from the literary worker who turns a telling phrase and straightaway looks for her to read it to double his joy by sharing it. Robert Lewis was ever discovering new beauties in his wife and she in him. Eliminate the element of surprise and anticipate everything a person can do or say, and love is a mummy. Thus do we get the antithesis, understanding and surprise. Marriage worked a miracle in Robert Lewis. Suddenly he became industrious. He ordered that a bell should be tingled at six o'clock every morning, or a whistle blown as a sign that he should get away, and at once he began the work of the day. More probably he had begun it hours before, for he had the bad habit of the midnight brain. Kipling calls Robert Lewis our only perfect artist in letters, the man who filed down to a hair. Robert Lewis knew no synonyms. For him there was the right word and nothing other. He balanced the sentence over and over on his tongue, tried and tried again until he found the cadence that cast the prophetic purple shadow that not only expressed a meaning, but which tokened what would follow. 
He was always assiduously graceful, always desiring to present his idea in as persuasive a light as possible, and with as much harmony as possible. That self-revelatory expression of Stevenson's is eminently characteristic of the man. I know what pleasure is, for I have done good work. Treasure Island opened the market for Stevenson, and thereafter there was a steadily increasing demand for his wares. Health came back, and the folks at home, seeing that Robert Lewis was getting his name in the papers, and noting the steady, triumphant tone of sanity in all he wrote, came to the conclusion that his marriage was not a failure. Above all men in the realm of letters, Robert Lewis had that peculiar and divine thing called charm. To know him was to love him, and those who did not love him did not know him. This welling grace of spirit was also the possession of his wife. In his married life, Stevenson was always a lover, never the loved. The habit of his mind is admirably shown in these lines. To my wife. Trusty, dusky, vivid, true, with eyes of gold and bramble dew, steel true and blades straight, the great artisan made my mate. Honor, courage, valor, fire, a love that life could never tire. Death quench nor evil stir, the mighty master gave to her. Teacher, pupil, comrade, wife, a fellow fairer, true through life, heart whole and soul free, the August Father gave to me. Edmund Goss gives a pen picture of Stevenson thus. I came home dazzled with my new friend, saying as Constance does of Arthur, was ever such a gracious creature born? That impression of ineffable mental charm was formed the first moment of acquaintance, about 1877, and it never lessened or became modified. Stevenson's rapidity and the sympathetic interchange of ideas was, doubtless, the source of it. He has been described as an egotist, but I challenge the description. If ever there was an altruist, it was Lewis Stevenson. He seemed to feign an interest in himself merely to stimulate you to be liberal in your confidences. Those who have written about him from later impressions than those of which I speak seem to me to give insufficient prominence to the gaiety of Stevenson. It was his cardinal quality in those early days. A childlike mirth leaped and danced in him. He seemed to skip the hills of life. He was simply bubbling with quips and jest. His inherent earnestness or passion about abstract things was incessantly relieved by jocosity, and when he had built one of his intellectual castles in the sand, a wave of humor was certain to sweep in and destroy it. I cannot for the life of me recall any of his jokes, and written down in cold blood, they might not seem funny if I did. They were not wit so much as humanity, the many-sided outlook upon life. I am anxious that his laughter-loving mood should not be forgotten, because later on it was partly quenched by ill health, responsibility, and the advance of years. He was often, in the old days, excessively, delightfully silly. Silly with the silliness of an inspired schoolboy, I am afraid our laughter sometimes sounded ill in the ears of age. A visit to Scotland, and the elders capitulated, apologized, and asked for quarter. So delighted was Thomas Stevenson with Lloyd Osborne that he made the boy his chief heir, and declared in the presence of Robert Lewis that he only regretted that his own son was never half so likely a lad, to which Robert Lewis made reply, Genius always skips one generation. Health had come to Robert Lewis in a degree he had never before known. He also had dignity and a precision such as his parents and kinsmen had despaired of seeing in one so physically and mentally vacillating. Stevenson was once asked by a mousing astrologer to state the date of his birth. Robert Lewis looked at his wife soberly and slowly assured, May 10th, 1880, and not even a smile crossed the countenance of either. Each understood. That the nature of Stevenson was buoyed up, spiritualized, encouraged, and given strength by his marriage, no quibbler has ever breathed the ghost of a doubt. His wife supplied him the mothering care that gave his spirit wing. He loved her children as his own, and they reciprocated the affection in a way that embalms their names in amber forevermore. 
When Robert Lewis, after a hemorrhage, sat propped up in bed, forbidden to speak, he wrote on the pad with pencil, Mr. Dumbly presents his compliments and praises God that he is sick, so he has to be cared for by two tender, loving fairies. Was ever a man so blessed? Again, he begins the day by inditing a poem, To the bare brown feet of my wife and daughter dear. And this, be it remembered, was after the bare brown feet had been running errands for him for thirteen years. And think you that woman so loved, and by such a man, would not fetch and carry, and run, and find their highest joy in ministering to him. If he were thrice blessed in having them, as he continually avowed, how about them? It only takes a small dole of love when fused with loyalty to win the abject, dog-like devotion of a good woman. On the day of his death, Stevenson said to his wife, You have already given me fourteen years of life. And this is the world's verdict. Fourteen years of life and love? And without these fourteen years, the name and fame of Robert Louis Stevenson were writ in water. With them, RLS has been cut deep in the granite of time. But better still, the gentle spirit of Stevenson lives again in the common heart of the world, and lives made better. End of chapter 2